I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to read the last part of Acts 21, and then a few verses into Acts 29 as we continue, Acts 22, uh, as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Listen to the word of the Lord. When seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, carrying him out, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill, kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he, they, he, inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? He said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the uh, assassins out into the wilderness. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in, this, uh, in Cilicia, a city of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Up to this word, they, uh, sorry, lost my my place here, verse 4. That's why you always have your Bible open. Don't just read from the, from the page. All right, here we go. Verse 5. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait, rise, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? When I had returned to Jerusalem as was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the Word of God. <laughs> thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise and thanks and glory and honor for your Word. We are very grateful to you, Lord, that you have spoken your Word and that you, by the power of your Spirit, through that Word, do that work in us, Lord. You transform us. You renew us. You show us the path that we are to walk in. And you make us more Father, like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we give you praise and thanks and glory and honor and ask that the Spirit would be with us as all of us sit under the authority of your Word this morning. Speak to us, we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, in much of the sports world, there is often a narrative centered on who is the greatest of all time. Uh, the status of the GOAT is debated in barbershops, around dinner tables, and certainly in the world of sports media. And while some sports lend themselves more to this debate than others, the obsession, the obsession with who is the greatest of all time, with who is the GOAT, occupies a lot of people's thinking in sports. Well, the GOAT debate, I would argue, doesn't just occupy the sports world, but it occupies the human community in general. In fact, I would say to you this morning, the gospel comes into a world of Babel, a world 
were nations who were once trying to build a monument of greatness together in defiance of God are now jockeying to build that same tower separate from each other. The gospel comes into a world, in other words, where the idolatry of nation often trumps the worship of a God who gave His Son to save people from among all the nations of the earth, drawing them together into one family under His rule and reign. Indeed, I would say to you this morning that Israel's call was not to be the goat of the nations, but rather to be a light for the nations, drawing them together to the worship of the only one who can bear that title of goat, that is our great triune God. What Paul confronts, brothers and sisters, in this mob is a people who have lost sight of that calling. Indeed, the temple that they were accusing Paul of desecrating by bringing a Gentile into it, which was not true, at least the part where the Gentiles were forbidden, that temple was erected to be a place where the Gentiles would actually come and encounter God. Jesus himself rebuked the segregated, exploitative practices that were going on in that temple in his day when he said, is it, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, in him, what the temple was meant to be was now fulfilled in that everyone who hopes in Jesus from among all the nations of the earth is saved and brought into the family of God under the rule and reign of Christ. Paul was preaching this gospel over and against the segregationist and nationalistic hopes of not only his own people, but those Gentiles who shared that idolatry. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Preaching that gospel is dangerous. Preaching that gospel is dangerous. It will send people looking for ways to get you into trouble, looking for ways to diminish your witness, looking for ways to frustrate your ministry, looking for ways to stop you. What Paul was encountering is what all who would preach the good news of the gospel will encounter from those who are committed to a different narrative over and against that gospel. The gospel by its very nature frustrates segregationist practices, it frustrates nationalistic practices, it frustrates racist practices, it frustrates sexist practices, it frustrates classist practices, it frustrates those practices and pronouncements in which we seek to declare ourselves the GOAT over and against everyone else. The gospel, brothers and sisters, tells us that in Jesus is our hope. In Jesus is our salvation, and in His multi-ethnic family is our identity and our acceptance. Preach this gospel, and you are placing yourself in the crosshairs of those who are idolatrously clinging to their own segregated worldview. 
And so the question for us this morning is this, what is our call in preaching the gospel in the face of this reality? Paul knew what Jerusalem meant for him. He knew what was going to happen to him because the prophet Agabus through the Spirit had revealed it to him. And yet he wouldn't be persuaded from going because he knew he was in God's will and he knew the message he was preaching was as much for, the, uh, for those in Jerusalem as it was for the Gentiles. And so Paul prepared himself to face that danger. And in so doing, he lays out for us a pattern in embracing the danger we face as we proclaim this message in our own day. Now, to be clear, most of us will likely never face exactly what Paul and the first century apostles faced, though who knows what the future holds. Yet we will face trial. We will first face persecution. We will face hardship. And so how do we enter into that for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the unifying gospel we preach concerning Him? I want to suggest that there are two patterns that the Apostle Paul lays out for us. One is a Jesus-shaped testimony. One is a Jesus-shaped testimony, and the other is a Jesus-shaped confrontation. A Jesus-shaped testimony and a Jesus-shaped confrontation. And a Jesus-shaped testimony includes, first of all, a willingness to enter into redemptive suffering. Back in Acts 9, we hear a conversation between Ananias and the Lord Jesus. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, that is Paul, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And Jesus responds to Ananias, and he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In his accounting, in verses 4 to 5 of Acts 22, Paul speaks of his past acts of violence, born of his zeal for the law of God and for the people of God. It was a violence that had actually approved of the stoning of Stephen and that continued to burn in Paul's acts of persecution against the church in which he sought to destroy the work of Christ and the work of his people. Paul had been a man of violence. Paul had been a man of violence in his zealous acts of persecution. Now, here he was on the other side of that violence, beaten almost to death, by a crowd of his fellow countrymen. Indeed, were it not for Roman intervention, he would have actually been killed. I mean, the soldiers had to carry him up the steps to keep him from being killed. And so here he was, beaten, almost certainly bloody, and no doubt in great pain from the beating he had just taken. And what does he do? How does he respond to the suffering he has just endured? Surely, this is the moment, the time to complain about the unjust treatment he has just suffered. Surely, he should remind his brothers and sisters of the law that they claim to be so zealous for, the spirit of which they are not upholding by trying to effect capital punishment against one who has not received a fair hearing. Maybe 
he should return their violence on their own head by reminding these soldiers of the danger of rioting, an action that Rome looked unfavorably upon. And yet, we see none of this in Paul's response. Instead, he turns to the tribune and begs for permission to speak to the people. What? You want to speak to people who just tried to beat you to death? You want to, you want to try and, and help people who were just trying to take you out of the world? You, you, you want to try and convince people who literally just lied on you and stirred up trouble for you? I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. You see, brothers and sisters, preaching the unifying gospel of Jesus will bring danger, but how we respond to that danger matters. What we do with our bodies in the hour of trial and tribulation and hardship and suffering matters. Paul turns his broken body toward his own people, a people who have just tried to kill him, not in anger, not in wrath, but in hope, the hope that he will be able to convince them of the good news about Jesus, even though they have just tried to kill him. What about us? Are we actually prepared to offer ourselves on behalf of our enemies? Are we willing to resist the temptation to return anger for anger, hate for hate, reviling for reviling, lying for lying? Are we willing instead to absorb the violence without returning it and so testify with our own lives, with our own bodies if we have to, that we are actually Jesus' people? I'm not talking about being silent about abuse or other forms of violence we encounter. I'll address that in a bit. The question is, are we prepared for the sake of the gospel to suffer even for the sake of our enemies? Are we willing to present a Christian testimony with our very lives, refusing to repay evil for evil, blow for blow, slander for slander, lie for lie? Are we willing to enter into redemptive suffering for the sake of the gospel advancing. A Jesus-shaped testimony includes redemptive suffering. It also includes a redemptive invitation. Paul not only turns his body toward his countrymen, testifying with it of his faith in Christ and his desire for their redemption, he also turns his speech toward them, inviting them to faith in Christ as the answer to their hopes as a people. You see, they were still looking to the law and to the temple as the center of their hope. They still believed that their zeal for both, including their zeal to protect both, would lead to God's salvation coming on their behalf. They were so committed to this, in fact, that the place that God had established as a house for all the nations to come and to know Him had now become a place of exclusion. Indeed, the reason Paul was in trouble in the first place was because he had been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the part of the temple that was forbidden for Gentiles to enter. In fact, any Gentile entering that part of the temple would be taking his own life into his hands since the Romans 
had allowed the Jewish religious leaders the right of capital punishment against those that violated that law. According to F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, there was, there was even signage posted in the temple about this. And so here we are, a people called out to be a light to the nations, functioning as anything but. Thus, when Paul, when Paul tells them his story, the story of one who had been where they were, who had seen the risen Messiah, who had seen God's Messiah, who had seen the answer to Israel's hope, who had seen the one who, unlike Israel, had carried forth God's vocation of being a light to the nations. He not, he's not just telling them his story, he is telling them the story of God in which they were now being called to be a part. Even as Paul tells them the story, he's inviting them to understand it as their story. God has answered their hopes of salvation, their longing for purpose and meaning. He has answered it in Jesus of Nazareth, the one they had crucified but that God had raised from the dead. This Jesus, in keeping with the Old Testament promises, had now, uh, this God, in keeping with the Old Testament promises, had now sent His Son to redeem not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth. It's not an unfamiliar story, and what it's more, it's God's true story. And Paul turns again to offer it to a people who had just tried to kill him for it. Can I tell you that this is our calling too? It's to turn, our enemy, turn to our enemies, to those who have rejected the story, and tell them again that in Christ there is hope. In Christ there is salvation. In Christ there is purpose and meaning. What we have, brothers and sisters, to offer our enemies is the story of redemption the redemption that includes not only themselves and their people, but all the peoples of the earth. And that's the story that we have to keep telling them. And so the call here, brothers and sisters, is to embody the unifying gospel of Jesus among our enemies, that is, with our bodies and with our speech, to give expression to this unifying gospel. What do those… here's my question. What do those who, with whom you are in conflict with, what do they see and experience from you as it relates to the gospel? The, those you are in conflict with, what, what do they see and experience from you as it relates to the gospel? Do, do they see a person who refuses to repay evil for evil? lying for lying, violence for violence. They hear speech about Christ and speech that glorifies Christ. <laughs> you know, we, we have to be careful, especially those of us who love fighting. We, we have to be careful, especially those of us who love fighting. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, I, I, but I know some of y'all in here like to fight. You don't, have to tell, you don't have to tell on yourself, but I know some of us like fighting. And one of the things we have to be careful about, those of us who love to fight, we have to be careful to not obscure the message of the gospel because of our desire to win the fight. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. Some of us love fighting, and we have to be careful that in our desire to win the fight, we don't obscure 
the message of the gospel. I'm going to talk about confrontation in a minute. Those of y'all who like confrontation, I'm going to talk about that in a second, what a Jesus-shaped confrontation looks like. But we have to be careful that in our bearing testimony about Jesus, that we don't allow our desire to win fights to obscure the message of the gospel. We need to remember that this battle is not ours. It's the Lord's. And He has told us how to fight it. And so the call when we, when we are in conflict with those who do not accept our testimony about Jesus, about His gospel, which draws the families of the earth together into one through faith in Him, our call, brothers and sisters, is to follow the pattern that was laid out by our Lord Himself and that was exemplified in Paul's actions. It is to absorb the violence without returning it and to keep offering our enemies the invitation to believe the gospel we proclaim. At the very moment of conflict with your enemies, you are called to ask the Lord to help you walk in that pattern of life. Ask Him to help you to resist that temptation that comes to all of us when we are facing violence for standing up for Christ, when we are tempted to repay evil for evil. I, I, I know, I, I, I know how you feel. When, 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 the, when the lie comes and the slander comes and the accusations come and, and the evil testimony and evil actions come, I know how some of you feel. That, that thing wells up on the inside of you and you, you say in your own head, your own mind, you know what? I'm saved, but I also got something else on the inside of me. And you want to show people that other thing you have on the inside. Some of y'all are not going to testify and, and tell the truth this morning. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to prove to this person that they can't just walk over me. I'm going to show them that I, that I know how to scrap. I know how to fight. I know, I, I, know, I know how to do battle. And you have to learn. You have to learn in the gospel to push that thing down so that you can actually present a testimony about Jesus that says in Him there is redemption and salvation and hope and reconciliation. This ain't about me. This is about the Lord's name being advanced. Father, help us. Help us get out of the way and present a testimony about you that draws folk to you. The Jesus-shaped testimony is what we're called to embody as we enter into the danger of preaching and proclaiming this gospel about Jesus. But I also want to talk about a Jesus-shaped confrontation. There's a Jesus-shaped testimony, and there's also a Jesus-shaped confrontation that we actually see in this text. So on the one hand, we're called to a Jesus-shaped testimony, one that involves our very lives, our bodies even, at times. One that involves an invitation to people from among all the families of the earth to hope in Christ for their salvation. Yet we are in that Jesus-shaped testimony also called to a Jesus-shaped confrontation. Now when I say confrontation, you, you shouldn't hear violence or anger or the like. Indeed, I've already said that the believer does not respond to violence in kind. Instead, we offer our bodies, our lives, even on behalf of our enemies. But this sacrificial suffering doesn't imply silence. 
This sacrificial suffering does not imply silence regarding the unjust violence that we suffer as we bear testimony to Jesus in this world. We aren't, brothers and sisters, called to shut up about the injustice we face or that we see happening all around us. Indeed, when Isaiah 53 says of Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Some of us have interpreted that to mean that Jesus did not say anything about the suffering he was enduring. It doesn't mean that he didn't say anything during that season of his trial and suffering. In fact, Jesus spoke to Pilate of the difference in the power of his kingdom and that of the kingdom of this world. He spoke to the high priest about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, signaling that was, what was happening to him now in this unjust trial would not be the end of the story. He spoke to the thief on the cross about the paradise that he would enter into with, with Jesus on account of his faith, showing God's mercy and kindness toward criminals. We'll come back to that in another sermon. He spoke to John about caring for his widowed mother who was being made a widow by virtue of the cruelty of the religious leaders and of Rome. No, Jesus didn't shut up about injustice or about a God who sees those who are suffering. Even in his last hours, we see him exposing the injustice and cruelty and merciless actions of those in power from the powers of the state to the powers of religious rulers to the power of individuals. Jesus confronts our violence and our cruelty. He shows us, in fact, what it is going to cost God to save us from that violence and that cruelty, what it's going to cost God to deliver us, to set us free from that violence and that, and that cruelty, is for Him to give His own life on our behalf. So what is Paul doing? When he turns to the centurion who is about to flog him, a man who has already been beaten and bloodied by the crowd. And from what we know about Roman flogging, even if Paul survived, he would not be in good shape thereafter. When Paul then turns to this Roman centurion with the question about being a Roman citizen, he is doing what his Lord had done many years before him, what the prophets had done for centuries when facing the violence and injustice of the world including the violence and injustice within the community of God's people. He is confronting it and exposing it for what it is. The Apostle Paul had already… You should not think that Paul is trying to get out of being flogging. He had already been, been, been flogged. He had already said that he was ready to go to Jerusalem and die for the sake of the gospel. Paul was not trying to get out of being flogged. That was not what was going on here. What Paul was, in fact, doing was confront, confronting the Roman state with its violent and unjust practices. He's doing what his Lord did. He's confronting it. He's exposing it for what it is. And in that confrontation, he is, in fact, saving the tribune and the centurion from the punishment 
that their own violence would have heaped on their head. I wish I. I, I, I <laughs> a man who's about to be flogged is not just thinking about himself, he's thinking about his enemies, who, if they get caught flogging him, who is a Roman citizen, they themselves will be punished. And so Paul says, I'm going to call out your injustice. I'm going to call out your violence. I'm going to help you see what you're doing because not only am I in danger, you are in danger of your own violence coming on your own head. And so Paul, who was a Roman citizen by birth, unlike the tribune who had paid for it, confronts the centurion and the tribune with this violence. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, and no Roman citizen could be flogged, especially without a trial. Brothers and sisters, it is not more Christian. (laughs) I want you to hear me. It is not more Christian to be silent about injustice, to be silent about cruelty, to be silent about abuse. We must never turn to violence and injustice ourselves when confronting violence and injustice, and we must be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ should our pleas for justice and righteousness go unheard. However, as believers, we have a responsibility to confront violence and injustice not only for, the, for our own sake, but for the sake of those who are bound up under that violence and injustice. We need to help them see what it is and see that the gospel offers them a path toward peace, offers them a path toward hope, offers them a path toward salvation that their violence and injustice does not. So Paul is engaged in a Jesus-shaped confrontation. And the question is, will we be? Will we be in our own day committed to this Jesus-shaped confrontation? I want to suggest to you that a Jesus-shaped testimony includes confronting the sinful violence of our world means calling out that violence for what it is. Paul called it out as it related to his own experience of it, and we are called to call it out in regard to our own experience of it, an experience of those around us, offering those who have given themselves over to it the better way of gospel peace. Paul didn't return unjust violence, but he did point it out. And so my question for us this morning, those of us who bear testimony about Jesus in this world? Are we called to do this? Are we committed to doing the same? When we see it in our Christian homes, will we call it out? When we see it among our Christian friends, will we call it out? When we see it in our neighborhoods, among the gangbangers and drug dealers, will we call it out? When we see it among those called to protect and serve, will we call it out? When we see it among our political and civil leaders, will we call it out? When we see the violence and experience its devastating consequences, will we be willing to call it out, offering those around us a better way than the way of violence? And you all know what that violence looks like. It doesn't just look like what we do with our hands. It also looks like what we do with our words. Some of us are as violent with our words as some folk are with their hands. I'm talking to all you social media folk. 
who use that platform to spew a lot of violent words, violent thoughts, rather than offering people the good news of the gospel and the hope of Jesus. A hope that calls sin what it is, but that does so in the way that Jesus would, and not in the way that this world does. Amen, people of God. Bearing testimony to Jesus doesn't call for silence in the face of evil. Quite the contrary, it calls for a Jesus-shaped confrontation in which we call it out. Willingly suffering whatever evil comes as a result and offering the world the better way of gospel peace. The Apostle Paul, who was about to be flogged, wasn't afraid of dying. He was exposing the evil that was taking place in that moment, the evil that was characteristic of the Roman state, characteristic of his own countrymen who had just beaten him half to death, characteristic of a world that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we have to offer in the face of danger, in the face of conflict, in the face of persecution, in the face of trial? that we will certainly suffer as we bear testimony about Jesus in this world. What do we have to offer? Well, we have to offer a better way. And that better way, brothers and sisters, is demonstrated through a Jesus-shaped testimony in which we willingly enter redemptive suffering, offering a redemptive invitation to our enemies. And it includes a Jesus-shaped confrontation in which we call out the sin and brokenness, the violence of this world and offer a better way. Preaching the unifying gospel of Jesus Christ is dangerous. It's dangerous because by its very nature, it confronts our idolatries, one of which is the idolatry of nation, the idolatry of culture, the idolatry of power, and the like. So as we enter into this calling, we're called to Jesus-shaped actions. Jesus-shaped testimony, a Jesus-shaped confrontation. And praise God that Jesus has done this for us and has sent His Spirit to dwell in us to give us the power to follow in His footsteps. No, we are not the world's Savior, but we are called to preach Him and to act in those ways that point people toward Him. May the Spirit of God give us the power for this in our generation for the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, people of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise, glory, honor, and thanks. We give you praise, glory, and honor, and thanks, Lord, because you have called us into the world, those of us who have faith in you, you've called us into the world to bear testimony to you. And you said it. You said it to your disciples. If the world hated me, it will hate you as well. We will have trial and tribulation in this world. You said that as well. In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. But as we bear testimony for you, Lord, there's a certainty that we will face trial, hardship, difficulty, suffering. And some of us will face that trial and difficulty, that suffering with our very bodies. So we ask you, Father, by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus, we ask you to give us power to bear testimony for you in the way that you call us to. We ask you 
to shape our testimony so that it is like the testimony of our Lord Jesus, who laid down his very body for his enemies, but who also spoke and invited his enemies into the salvation that he was offering. Help us to follow in your footsteps, Lord, laying down our own bodies for the sake of our enemies, inviting them into the hope of the gospel. But also we pray that you would give us the power of your spirit to engage in a Jesus-shaped confrontation in which we do not remain silent about the evil, the violence of the world, violence that we endure, violence that those around us endure, but that instead, Lord, we would offer those who are even trapped, those who are trapped under that violence and those who are trapped committing themselves to that violence. We pray that, that they would receive the better way of peace that the gospel lays forth. We pray that you enable us to proclaim that better way with our lives and with our speech. Father, give us what we need by your Spirit to be the people you're calling us to be in this world, we pray. And now, Lord, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, as we prepare to take communion, I pray that you would, Lord, as we approach this table, that you would already be working in our hearts and in our minds to prepare us to receive from you again the life that you offer to all who have faith in you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.